1984, approximately a generation from today, my family, our children who were seven and four at that time, took a trip to New Delhi, India, the city where I grew up. They had first cousins that they had not even seen yet. And that part of the trip went okay. What I was not prepared for was a relentless onslaught upon my faith. The inescapable proximity of the desperately poor slowly and steadily pressed with increasing weight upon my soul. Added to that, because I was a person of faith whose life had been radically transformed by a relationship with Jesus Christ, I was also aware of the fact that the masses around me, most of them had not heard the good news, probably will not hear it, and if they did, probably would not be able to understand it. My own parents who had watched me on this journey for 31 years had not yet responded in any way at all. And to make matters worse, barely four years ago, I had resigned an intellectually challenging, well-paying, relationally enriching job with Atomic Energy of Canada to become a preaching pastor at Rexdale Alliance Church. And what had seemed to be so meaningful in these first four years of my ministry now seemed completely irrelevant to the problems of the world, both economically poor and spiritually poor. I was pretty well ready to come back home resign my job in the church and hope I could get my job with Atomic Energy back again. Not to walk away from my faith, but to walk into a highly privatized version of my faith, settling in suburbia behind the white, proverbial white picket fence, and managing my own family and leaving the problems of the world to God. I was going through tough times. Not relationally, not financially, not physically, but at the worldview level. And struggles and hardships at the worldview level are sometimes the most profound because they can spill over into every other dimension of our lives. Now, perhaps there are some of you listening here to me who have actually had struggles at that worldview level. More than more likely, you have had struggles at the physical level with sicknesses, at the relational level, whether inside the home or in your neighborhood, and vocationally when it comes to the work environment. What, what's important though, regardless of the nature of our hard times, is this question. Do we merely survive these hard times or can we thrive in them? Do we just set ourselves up to endure somehow or to actually become new people? Because you see, you can endure, you can get through and still be left harsh, cynical, disengaged and even bitter. And so the challenge is, can we avoid that? Is there a way to live that is different than that? And when it comes to this issue of becoming better rather than bitter, thriving rather than surviving, perspective becomes all important. In an article entitled Nine Mental Habits That Can Make You Feel Better, psychologist Dr. Andrea Bonoir says, many aspects of our personalities and emotional makeups develop over time through the habits we have adopted. The ways we interpret events, the thoughts that run through our heads like clockwork, and the explanations we give ourselves for how the world works. It's all perspective worldview stuff. Few people want to become bitter and negative, and yet it's not uncommon, especially for people who have experienced more than their share of tough times. Tough times make us bitter because of our perspective on those tough times. Therefore, if we're going to go beyond enduring to actually thriving, we're going to have to change our perspective on these hard times, which of course immediately raises the question, how? How do you change your perspective? Now, obviously, it's going to involve some rigorous and careful thinking. But while that is necessary, it is not sufficient because 
tough times engender all kinds of emotions that go penetrate deep down at the heart level. And just like a bad toothache can prevent you from paying any attention to a sermon like this or writing a term paper, in the same way, these kind of hurts that come from hard times get in the way sometimes of careful, rigorous thinking. Therefore, changes in perspective have to be more than just at the head level. They have to make that very long journey, 18 inches, but very long, from the head to the heart, so that they actually have a potential for changing us at the action level. And that's what brings me to the subject for today, which is prayer. You might say, oh, just a minute, come on, Sundar. How can you give us that predictable answer that doesn't really work? After all, all your problems were with the nature of God back in India. How can prayer make any difference? No. Think of it this way. All of us can talk about relationships with people that have transformed. We've been in conversations that send us away with a different perspective. Well, prayer is exactly that. It's the currency of a relationship only at the vertical level. And so in exactly the same way, our conversations with God have the same potential to change our perspective. But not any kind of prayer. I want to talk today about the kind of prayer that actually can change perspective. There's some kind of praying that we do that actually makes us feel worse at the end of it. I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. And we're going to go to the Psalms. You've been in the middle of a series on the Psalms, and I'm happy to fit into that. And we're going to learn from a man named Asaph probably was a musician in the court of King David, Israel's greatest king, belonging to the temple guild there. Perhaps he was a singer, perhaps he was a musician. And he records his journey, navigating hard times so he actually becomes better, through a prayer that is recorded for us in Psalm 73 that I want to just walk you through today. So he begins in this way. He said, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. This man's life and theology were in tension. His theology told him, God is good to Israel, the faith community. God is good to me, who is an individual good member of that faith community. And God is not good to those people who leave him out of the picture. That was his theology. Life said exactly the opposite. All these people who seem to leave God out of the picture in their lives seem to be having everything going well with them. Whereas he himself was having all kinds of trouble. So much so that he began to envy these people. And when envy settles in, bitterness is not very far behind. British essayist, novelist Dorothy Sayers said this. She said, envy begins by saying, why can't I have what they have? It then moves to saying, why should they have what I don't have? And then it moves to an attempt to take those things away from them. But because most of us don't have the power to do that, we become bitter towards the other person. So something like this was happening in the psalmist's life. So much so that it was almost threatening to undo. That's why he said, I almost lost my foothold. I was losing stability. And then in the next several verses, he kind of amplifies and details every dimension of this envy. And he gets to a pretty desperate situation when he says this, Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. Hands refer to the actions and the heart refers to the inner spring. And vanity here doesn't mean pride, the way we normally use the word vain. It means pointless. Basically, he was saying, what's the point? What's the point both in my interior of my life and in the exterior action dimension of my life attempting to be godly? It's kind of like my 
situation back in India. What's the point doing all this work in church? Now, in my case, as I said, it was not an abandonment of faith. It was just a privatized, disengaged faith. In the psalmist's case, the dilemma was strong enough that he was actually contemplating walking away from all of it. His was a battle between the two, surely. Surely God is good, but surely the wicked are prospering. What do I do? Are those the only options available for us when life and theology are clashing like this and creating hard times? Either a partial or a total disengagement from faith? Let's see what the psalmist does. His starting point is found in verse 15. If I had said I would speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. What does he mean by thus? In other words, he says, if I keep on saying things like this, oh, it is pointless, both at the level of my heart and my heart as the inner springs and my hands, which are my action, it's pointless. He said, if I keep talking like that, there are other people in my sphere of influence who are going to get negatively affected and they might be affected and I will actually be betraying or letting down this generation. He was probably thinking of his role as a worship leader or a musician. He was one of those things. He was saying, well, what are those people going to say if I walk away like this? So he says, I really can't walk away. I better go back and do some more hard thinking to get a new perspective on this situation. (laughs) But you know what? It doesn't work either. For he goes on to say, when I tried to understand all this at the level of intellect, it was oppressive to me. (laughs) It was becoming a burden. It wasn't helping him. So you can see the condition that the poor man is in. (laughs) He can't understand it or make sense of it. Therefore, he can't live it. But he also can't walk away from it because other people are going to be betrayed. What do you do? What do you do when you're caught between this proverbial rock and a hard place? And now we are getting to the crux of the matter. He says, when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God. Now, what was the sanctuary? The sanctuary for him was a place of full-orbed encounter with God. In the temple, probably. He encountered God in ways that went just beyond his head to engage his imagination and his feelings as well. It happened in many ways. Uh, Probably the songs that he sang, which may well have been the Psalms. Uh, The prayers that were prayed, again, probably the Psalms. He heard scripture that was read and scripture that was explained. He was able to listen to God. And he also participated in some time-honored rituals. The enactments of the great events, redemptive history events of his people that connected into a long history in the past, probably all the way back to Abraham and Moses and David. And so he was able to regain perspective. This was for him the sanctuary moment. His perspective changed in a way that integrated mind and heart so as to affect his will and change his feelings. Specifically, three things happened. He gained perspective in three areas. First of all, he says in verse 17, Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you placed them on slippery ground. The very people that he envied before, he now sees in a different light. He says the long-term consequences of a life that leaves God out of the picture is really not worth envying at all, no matter how attractive it may look in the short term. So he gets a clearer picture of the people that he envied. And he said there really is nothing to envy in that kind of a life. Secondly, he sees sees himself differently. 
Look what he says here. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. <laughs> he realizes what was happening to him outside the sanctuary. Not only were the people that he was envying not worth envying, he said, look at what was happening to me. I let the legitimate emotion of grief when my heart was grieved degenerate into envy. So much so that I lost perspective. He had forgotten that one of the Ten Commandments is not to be envious. He was breaking the commandment of God. Essentially, he said, I'd become like a brute beast. I was responding in an instinctual manner. See the progression? Grief to envy, the lack of clarity in thinking, dehumanization. So this goodness that he thought was creating all these problems was actually a misconception. He had the people wrong and he had his imagined goodness all wrong. And then thirdly, most important of all, he broke to, to a fresh understanding of what God's goodness really was. When he says this, you hold me by my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. You remember that the whole tension was created by the fact that he couldn't reconcile the statement that God was supposed to be good to him and to Israel and not to the people who were leaving him out of the picture. Now he's realizing that the tension was all his problem because he's got the, his own imagined goodness all wrong and he had completely got God's goodness all wrong. Now he goes through a perspective change on how God is good and there are three dimensions to that goodness. First of all, he said, he holds me by my right hand. I'm held in God's hands. In other words, the greatest demonstration of God's goodness to him was proximity, was an intimate relationship with him. By the way, notice how he said earlier on, my feet had almost slipped. Now we get the secret of the almost. Why didn't it slip the whole way? Because somebody else was laying a hold of him. He wasn't holding on to God. His grip on God had gone, but not God's grip on him. That's the first sign of God's grip. Secondly, he said, it's not just the grip to kind of hold me there to prevent me from falling. It was also a grip that led me. He was actively leading me through life's perplexing comparisons and difficulties and mysteries. He was actively involved in my life. And thirdly, he will do this until he takes me to glory. In other words, God is, will finish what he started and take me all the way when I will stand before him with the unmediated revelation of the beauty, glory, and the majesty of God, of which he had only had a few occasional glimpses on some of his best days of leading worship inside the sanctuary. So see what has happened to him inside the sanctuary? What he could not understand outside and was oppressive to him, he understood inside. The tensions between life and theology are seldom worked out only in the mind, but they come to their final resolution in acts of worship. And so he ends by saying, but as for me, <laughs> I love the words. Remember how he began with as for me? Surely God is good to Israel. Surely God is good to those who are But as for me, I was in trouble. Now he's changed the as for me's because his perspective has changed. But as for me, it is good to be near God. See, he now understands goodness very differently. Goodness isn't all the good things in life, easy things in life. Goodness is proximity and intimacy with God, number one. Secondly, because of that, I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will run to him. I will do what I've just finished doing over and over and over again. 
And thirdly, he said, I will tell of all your deeds. That's a recommitment to his ministry. I'm going back into the temple. I'm back into the, as the new worship leader with fresh passion to be able to tell everybody about this amazing God that I've got it. So if you want to sum up his whole journey in a single sentence, it is this. Prayer may not change what we see, but it will change how we see. Prayer may not change what we see, but it will change how we see. We will gain new perspective. Okay, how are we going to bridge our experience to his? Because this is a story of one man 3,000 years ago. We are not, most of us, worship leaders in any kind of temple. And stories don't have a one-to-one -one correspondence. Rather, we are called to enter stories with our imagination to forge some connection points between their story and our story. And I want to just trace three points of connection that might, will help us, I think, make his experience ours so that we also, facing the hard times that we might, will not merely survive but thrive, will not merely endure but become new, will not become better but will become better, bitter but better. First of all, Asaph lets himself go. He doesn't hold back. He gives full vent to his feeling, and Sawyer has been teaching you that in the psalm that he's been singing, in the psalms of lament in particular. He spells out an excruciating, he didn't just say, I envied it. He said, ah, you're good to those people. This is how you are good to them. This is how I'm envied. God, this is what you are doing. He, he just poured out his whole heart to God. By the way, the psalm has 28 verses, and he laments for 14 verses. 50% of the psalm is all about pouring his heart out, complaining, spelling out the problem, as if God didn't know any of this. But he needed to have it set in God's presence. He just let himself go. Now, this is not the place to finish, but it is often the place to start. We're not very good as a society at lamenting, so I'm glad that you're being taught how to lament from the psalms. I think something like half of the psalms are psalms of lament both individual and community lamentations. And they, you could do worse than simply open the Bible to Psalm 1, read it out loud, then Psalm 2, then Psalm 3, go all the way through 150 Psalms and do it all over again. You, know. you could do worse than that, to be trained in letting yourself go. And then fleshing it out with the specific ugly details of your life and ugly emotions as well. You heard that about last week. Even the ugliest of emotions can be taken to him. I remember Andrei Sakharov, reading about Andrei Sakharov. He was a Russian Nobel laureate, a physicist. He was a dissident, uh, spoke out on political matters. And so he was sentenced to domestic exile, something like six years, I think. After he came out, uh, there was an interview with the Toronto Star. This was a long time ago about how he survived. Well, he did far more than survive. He thrived. And one of the things he did was every day he took one psalm and translated it from the Hebrew into the Russian. Interesting that he would use those psalms to do exactly what they were intended to do. Lament and in his hard times keep himself from becoming embittered. We could, as I said, do the same. Secondly, Asaph makes himself think. And part of making ourselves think is to ask questions that Asaph's experience suggests to us. Remember how he said, if I speak thus, I would betray this generation of your children? We need to ask ourselves, if I just give in to hard times, 
If I just retreat behind my white picket fence and retreat into a disengaged, privatized faith, I'll walk away from it altogether. Who are the other people whose lives are going to be affected? People that are looking to me. People within my sphere of influence. There's always somebody that you will affect by your choices. I know for myself, one of the first answers to that question, right at the top of that list, are my six grandchildren. And recently, I got a beautiful gift for Father's Day. My daughter gave me. It's a little keychain. Doesn't look very spectacular until you look at it close. And there are six precious jewels in here. And next to each of the jewels, it happens to be the birthstone of each of the grandchildren. Are their names? The significance of this, of course, is that I've often shared with my children, my grandchildren, how my grandchildren to me are, and their names are like the uh, the clothes that Aaron, the high priest, wore. You might remember there were 12 precious stones sewn onto the front part of his garment, each with the name of one of the tribes of Israel. And then he had two precious stones on his shoulders, one with six tribes' names and the other with six. So those 12 tribes were on his shoulder and over his heart. On his shoulder represented the burden that he would carry. On his heart represented the fact that he loved them. And one enabled him to do the other. It would be such a beautiful picture that the picture that God has given to me of this stage in my life is to be like that gem polisher for my grandchildren. Having them on my heart and over my shoulder. And so this is with me all the time. This is who I will betray if I speak thus and say it is in vain to serve God because times are difficult. Yours may not always be the same. But you need to have an answer to that question. Who, whose life will be affected if I just walk away? By the way, that's why it is so important for us to live our life with some kingdom purposes in mind. Because it is those kingdom purposes that are going to get affected if we just simply walk away. Asaph lets himself go. Asaph makes himself think. And finally, Asaph pulls himself together. And he pulls himself together in what we have called his sanctuary experience with a whole-bodied, full-orbed encounter with God. And we need to harness the same kind of elements that Asaph probably harnessed as a temple musician. First of all, scripture. As scripture is read for us, or as we read it and explained, we hear God speak to us, which is an important part of getting perspective right. We come up against other Asaphs. I want to take them to one story. The Bible is full of many Asaphs who in hard times broke through in this way. Through the kind of resilient building prayer. Who let themselves go, made themselves think and pulled themselves together. We might run across pictures of God that sustain us in our praying. The fact that God is eternal and outside of time has constantly come to my rescue in my times of busyness. And busyness, by the way, is one of the biggest obstacles to this kind of praying. To know that God is eternal, God is Lord of time, calms me in my frenzy and hurry to get things done. And also through scripture, we are connected to our larger faith. We go not only all the way back to Abraham and work through Abraham and Moses and David and Asaph and the great prophets like Isaiah, But then all through to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, James, the authors of Hebrews, we go all the way back. That is our heritage. And then as we read church history, the biographies, we keep getting connected to the bigger story of which we are a part. And then the second part of Asaph's experience was prayer. 
speaking back to God. By the way, this is the best use, the one-two punch of scripture and prayer. Listen to God in scripture, let it build perspective, and then take those perspectives and let them fuel your passionate prayers to God. Prayers of petition, prayers of confession, prayers of intercession. And, and in this, don't forget music, don't forget songs. They are crucial, songs are crucial, because you know why? Music and poetry do an end run around our intellects that often get in the way and directly affect the imagination, or through the imagination, affect the will. And we are engaged in a way that we might otherwise not be. Alan Bloom, uh, many years ago, wrote a book called The Closing of the American Mind. And he said this, Armed with music, man can damn rational doubt <coughs> because music supplies the unquestioned authentication for every activity that accompanies it. Armed with music, we can damn rational doubt because music supplies the unquestioned authentication of every activity that is accompanied. Let me give you an illustration. You might in the course of a, a church experience or whatever, have someone say to you, maybe this pastor, say, you know, God really loves you. And yeah, it kind of registered, but if you're like me, sometimes I'm sitting there saying, yeah, but how do I know that? What has he done lately to show me? And there might be some questions, doubts, rational doubts coming up. And then the worship team gets up and they lead me in reckless love. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I am found, leaves the 99. There's no shadow he won't light up, no mountain he won't climb up coming after me. No walls he won't tear down, no lie he won't break down. And by that time, every part of me say, yes, God, my hands are up and I'm singing however imperfect. That's the power of music. Don't forget to harness that in speaking back to God. So, let yourself go. Make yourself think and pull yourself together. And then finally, most important of all, don't forget to show up in the sanctuary on Sunday. You never know what's at stake. Let me take you back to India. September the 2nd, Sunday, the last Sunday there. The following day, Monday, I was scheduled to fly back with my family. I went to church in the morning. Sunday morning service with my wife, children. Nothing spectacular happened to really change that disengaged frame of mind that I was in, struggling with those issues that I talked about at the beginning of my message. Well, we went back home, started packing, evening came. In those days, there were two services in most churches. And my wife wasn't feeling like coming. She was packing. So I decided to go by myself. I went and sat down uh, in there. And in, in those days, the ministers, the pastors in the churches would, would sit on chairs on the platform. You might remember that, those of you who are my age and my vintage. And so the man who got up, he was a guest speaker from Wycliffe Bible Translators. He got up and he said, today I'm going to be speaking to full-time workers. Well, I kind of looked around. All the full-time workers were on the platform. Yours truly was the only one sitting there. So I thought, okay, mind me, me. And then he says, has the joy run out of your life? I was sitting bolt upright. How did he know? That's exactly the position I was in. And then he told us, he took, them, took us to the text, the well-known text of Jesus turning water into wine. And you know that story. And he made four observations. He said, Jesus could have occupied center stage but he made the servants do the work. Secondly, the need was for wine, but he made them fill the tubs with water. Does your work seem irrelevant to the need? Yes! That's exactly what I was struggling with, right? Uh, but this man of mine was reading my mind. Thirdly, he said, only Jesus can turn water into wine, 
but without the water, there would be no wine. So your work, no matter how irrelevant it seems, is crucially necessary. And fourthly, he said, Jesus saves the best for last, because you know the, the wine that he gave at the end was the best wine. And then he went on to tell story after story after story of Wycliffe Bible translators that were completely and totally persevering with no fruit for 10, 15, 20 years, and then suddenly came the harvest. I was a totally transformed man in the sanctuary. Needless to say, all thought of quitting ran on the window. I came back. I served for 32 more years at Rexdale. I made over 60 trips to 18 different countries, 14 of those trips back to the country of India. All of that because I went to the sanctuary. What would have happened if I had decided not to go? The entire trajectory of my entire life would have been different. So, if you want to do more than endure hard times, if you want to become new people rather than just endure, if you want to thrive rather than survive, if you want to become better than than bitter, learn the art of resilient prayer from ASAP. Let yourself go, make yourself think, pull yourself together and show up in the sanctuary. Let's pray together. Father, even now, even now, I want you to do that sanctuary work in the lives of many people that are listening. Maybe they didn't even realize until this moment that this was exactly for where they are now at this time. Renew their minds, inflame their hearts, energize their bodies and open their eyes. Resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, do for them what you did for the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And let them mark this day as a turning point so they will tell in the future their sons, their daughters, this next generation, everyone that depends upon them in some way or another. Oh, let me tell you about my Asaph moment. We trust you, Lord. Our hope is in you. In Jesus' name. Amen.